Acts chapter 16 this morning. I find it interesting that any time that God begins to do a work, Satan tries to disrupt it. We've already seen this on several occasions in the book of Acts. You think about back through the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 4, the apostles received threats from the Jewish authorities. But rather than deter them from preaching, it encouraged them to continue with a greater sense of boldness. Then in Acts chapter 5, there was deception within the church. And Ananias and Sapphira were struck dead. And the apostles were arrested and beaten by the Jewish elders. But this caused the church to grow even more. Then in Acts chapter 6 and 7, there was division within the church over the treatment of the widows, remember? And then Stephen was tried for blasphemy and he was murdered by an angry mob. And the church was scattered from Jerusalem by the violent hand of Paul or Saul. But far from hindering the ministry of the gospel, this caused churches to spring up all over the region. Even as far as Antioch in Syria. In chapter 8, Simon the sorcerer tried to corrupt the gospel ministry with bribery and greed. But Peter and John clearly saw his false motives. They condemned his wickedness. And then in chapters 10 and 11, the church was forced to confront the very real prejudice of the Jews against the Gentiles. This was followed in chapter 12 by the fierce persecution at the hands of King Herod. It resulted in the death of James, the brother of John. In chapter 13, we we read of the attempt uh, by Elymas, the sorcerer, to oppose the preaching of the gospel and to turn Sergius Paulus away from the truth there in Cyprus. This was followed by even more persecution as Paul and Barnabas were forced to leave Antioch by the city magistrates. And the chapter 14, remember Paul was stoned and left for dead outside the city of Lystra. And then, of course, chapter 15, we encounter the rise of false teaching within the church itself in the form of the Jewish insistence on circumcision for Gentile Christians, which endangered the simple truth of the gospel that we are saved by grace through faith apart from works. You see, Satan, all throughout the book of Acts, up to this point, was actively opposing the work of God at every turn. And to be honest, his methods are really quite diverse, aren't they? Opposition from within, opposition from without. Uh, Persecution, hostility, attempts at coercion, bribery, confrontation within the spiritual realm, um, all sorts of different ways that Satan tried to oppose the ministry. And really, to be honest, nothing has changed. And that's really why this is significant to us today, because nothing has changed about how Satan works. And so in Acts chapter 16, we're in the city of Philippi there with the Apostle Paul, with Silas and Timothy and Luke himself. And we find Satan here trying to use another approach to subvert the gospel ministry of Paul and his companions, right? So let's look at, we're just going to look at a couple of verses, but it's really interesting what happens. If you remember where we're at, Paul and Barnabas, or Paul and Silas rather, and his team had had gone to Philippi, had gone down to the river, the time of prayer on the Sabbath day, and they had met some women there who were believers in God, though they were not Jewish. 
And they had one, at least one of them to Christ, Lydia, we understand, and her household, one to Christ. And so this church in Philippi, this fledgling infant newborn church was established there. And, and then we read here in verse 16, now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us who brought her masters much profit by fortune, tell, fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. Now, I can tell that you're somewhat underwhelmed by this passage of scripture. How does this constitute Satan uh, attempting to stop the ministry of the gospel in Philippi? In good time. We'll, We'll reveal that. In fact, I was tempted when I first looked at this chapter and I first outlined this chapter, I was tempted to treat these verses as an introduction to the rest of the chapter. Because these three verses explain to us how Paul and Silas ended up in the jail there in Philippi. And and eventually they end up in the jail face to face with the Philippian jailer who asks them maybe the single most important question in all of Scripture. The most important question in all of Scripture asked by the Philippian jailer. And so I thought, well, These verses give us a little bit of groundwork, foundation. I was just going to kind of go through them real quickly. But as sometimes happens, as I begin to study a passage and begin to meditate on it and look at it carefully, I began to see that there's something here that that deserves our attention. It deserves us to stop and look at these verses because there's something very, very important going on here. There's an important truth that we must consider. And I, I would argue, and I would, I would say this very, very firmly this morning, that as a church, we must understand what was taking place in those three verses. For our protection, for our uh, uh, benefit, for our well-being as Christians and as a church. Now, I know this passage is very short, but what this passage does is it reveals to us the depth of Paul's commitment to the purity of the gospel. And it's this very same commitment that we must adopt ourselves if we are going to be protected from the dangerous errors and false teaching which have captured so many churches and so many Christians really through the history of the church. But more and more, we're seeing it happening in our day and age. Christians and entire churches being captured by false teaching, by false doctrine. And the doctrine, the error we are going to see is right here in these verses. And we need to know it, we need to identify it. Let me just um, kind of first, as we go through, just give you a general overview of the situation. Paul and his fellow ministers after having led Lydia and her household to Christ, are now using her home as their base of operations uh, in the region. Um, 
it's not a stretch at all for us to say that her house was the location where the church gathered and met uh, in Philippi. They are meeting there with the rest of the church, but of course, they are also going out into the city in an attempts to reach others with the gospel. Because the ministry of the church is not contained within the walls of the church. Yes, there are important things that take place when the church gathers. And some of those things are only for the church and are not for outsiders at all. But the church in its gatherings and meetings is intended to then turn outward with the gospel. And, and go from this place out into the city. And that's what they were doing. And so they're meeting there in Lydia's home. But they're continuing to go out and, and seek out others who need to hear the truth of the gospel. And this really isn't a major point of my message this morning. But to be honest, that's what we should be doing too. It's, not, it's one thing for us to come here on Sundays, come here on Wednesdays, come here when we have things going on and, and minister to one another, encourage one another, build one another up. That's good. That's what we should do. But that is not the end of what we have been called to do. So after and once we have done that here in this place, built each other up, encourage one another, taught one another, strengthen one another, then we are to walk out the door and we are to engage in our Society. With what? With the word of God. The truth of the gospel. That's what this is really about. And so Luke tells us that they went to prayer. And, and there in verse 16 he says they went to prayer. But, it, but it, it really could be translated the place of prayer. They went to the place of prayer. Again, likely that same place where they met Lydia and the other women outside the city. And as they are going to that place, they were met on their way by a slave girl who, we are told, was possessed by a spirit of divination. The actual phrase used here is a spirit of python. And it refers to an ancient mythical figure embodied in a snake. The python. To the, the pagan Greeks, this meant that she had the ability to tell the future. And so her masters used her to that end. Now Richard Lenski offers an interesting commentary on this girl. And I want to read it for you what he said. He said, the masters charged a price for the information which people desired of the girl. The world has not changed in this respect. Girls are still exploited just so money can be made through them, no matter what becomes of their souls or their bodies. And divining of all sorts still brings in good money. And get this, this when I read this, this really, this really kind of blew my mind here for a second. For men will not believe God, but will believe the charlatans who profess to be able to pry into the future. Think about how foolish that is. That anyone would turn to someone, a man, who professes to be able to predict the future. And they would turn to him, all the while refusing to believe the one who knows the future. Because he sees the future. He knows the end from the beginning, right? Scripture tells us he's the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is eternal. Therefore, the future to him is no different than the past. 
And yet, rather than believe him, men will seek out others, charlatans, fakes. And that's exactly what was taking place here in this culture of paganism and idolatry. This girl who was possessed by a spirit, a demon, Luke tells us. And yet, in the eyes of the people of Philippi, she was a fortune teller. And so they used her as such. This is important, by the way, for us to note because in Scripture, God's servants are represented as being interested in heavenly treasures, not earthly profit. And Paul instructed Timothy and Titus that a pastor must not be greedy for money. See, both of those books, Paul lays out very carefully the qualifications that are required for a man to be a pastor. And one of those qualifications is not greedy for money. In fact, in 1 Timothy 6.6, 6, Paul told Timothy that godliness with contentment is great gain. You see, in contrast to that, Satan's ministers can be identified by their obsession with their own pleasure and their own profit. Right? Just prior to admonishing Timothy that godliness with contentment is great gain, Paul said this in 1 Timothy 6, verses 3-5, through If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, listen, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth. But then listen to how he finishes, how he concludes that statement about these men who refuse the words of truth. He says they suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Paul says to Timothy, from such withdraw yourself. Even Peter, in 2 Peter 1, or I'm sorry, 2 Peter 2, warned believers to watch out for teachers who will exploit you by covetousness with deceptive words. We need to beware of anyone who would use the ministry of the gospel to make himself or herself rich because they are truly ministers of Satan. This is a very important distinction. And right from the get-go, we realize that's what's taking place because the masters who own this slave girl are using her for that purpose. Simply to make themselves wealthy. And the profit motive is not from God when I'm talking about ministerial things. Now, please don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that profit is wrong. I'm not saying that if you have a business, you work a business, you shouldn't try to earn a profit. That's not it at all. That's completely a separate issue from this. There's nothing wrong with that. We are to work diligently. We are to do the best that we can and maximize our efforts. But, even as Christians, if, if we pursue wealth... We are not following God's will. We're not. If we're pursuing riches and wealth for riches and wealth's sake. And anyone who claims to be a minister of God, who is only using that ministry to make himself or herself rich, is not truly a minister of God. 
Paul and his men encountered this young girl. And, 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 and they apparently passed her. But she turned around and followed them. And she cried out loudly with these words. She said, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And apparently for many days, she continued to do this, grieving the Apostle Paul greatly. Now, this is where this gets kind of puzzling. When you look at this verse, verse 18, these words that she spoke, why was Paul grieved by these words? Do you, ever, do you look at that and wonder? Why was he grieved? As she says, these men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaimed to us the way of salvation. Why was this grievous to Paul at all? Uh, the, the, King, the New King James here translates that as, as he was greatly annoyed. And that's, not, that's, not, that's a valid translation. It just doesn't see, really convey the full sense here. Because to us, something that's annoying is just, it's just annoying. It's not like that big of a deal. It's just annoying. That's not what this is. This is something that grieved him deeply. And so it wasn't just that Paul kind of was annoyed and just, fine, I just, you know, fed up. It grieved him in his spirit very deeply that she would do this. But why? Why would it be so grievous for her to speak those words? And if they grieved Paul so much, why did he endure them for many days before he responded to her? These questions, I think, deserve an answer. So as I've read and studied these verses, I've come to a conclusion here. And this is important because there's a lot of speculation about why Paul responded the way that he did. But I've come to the conclusion that we really can't know with absolute certainty why Paul responded the way he did because Luke doesn't tell us what Paul was thinking. There's a lot of little details in the book of Acts that are like this. And we're left really with nothing but speculation. But I think we can narrow down the reasons why Paul responded this way to a couple of different um, issues that, that rise out of this girl's statement. And from that, I think we can draw some legitimate conclusions um, about what was going on here and what our response should be. The first conclusion, I think, is really simple. I think that Paul rejected the girl's proclamation because she was a corrupt messenger. Paul rejected her proclamation because she was a corrupt messenger. This is significant. Even if her message were true, and in a minute we'll say a little bit more about that. Even if her message was true, it was clearly coming from someone who had never actually received the gift of salvation. She speaks of the way of salvation, right? But clearly this was someone who had never actually received that gift of salvation. No disciple of Christ could be, could be possessed by a demonic spirit as this girl clearly was. She was steeped in the pagan, idolatrous world of the Romans, and nothing about her character or her behavior could possibly be said to reflect the true God of Scripture. Everyone, I'm sure, in Philippi knew this girl. And many of them probably had taken advantage of her gift of fortune-telling. So, to hear an affirmation of the Gospel from her lips 
would not improve the trustworthiness of the message, would it? If anything, hearing her proclaim this message would detract from or cast doubt on the true gospel. Because what she said was obviously not coming from the true God of the Bible, was it? Now, this is important because today we need to, we need to recognize this principle that the, the trustworthiness of the message depends on the faithfulness of the messenger. The trustworthiness of the message depends on the faithfulness of the messenger. Unfortunately, we have many today who parade about in all types of foolish and wicked behavior, yet they claim to have received a word from the Lord, and many undiscerning Christians are deceived by these men and women and give themselves over to a corrupt gospel. And of course, what these people are preaching may even sound correct. It may even be correct to some extent. In fact, many of the most popular leaders within the the modern charismatic movement, for instance, are men and women of suspect morals, even being found guilty of immorality and fraud. And yet they gather to themselves followings of thousands and tens of thousands. Why? Because they claim to be able to perform miracles or receive some sort of divine revelation from God. And so even though they stand before crowds of tens of thousands of people, openly involved in wicked and immoral behavior, the very fact that their character is inconsistent with the message that they proclaim is ignored. I, I, I wasn't sure how I wanted to go about this this morning because I'm not trying to just unnecessarily pick on charismatic preachers and teachers. Let me say this in a little bit of a different way. Anyone who claim, claims to speak for God yet lives in unrepentant sin is not speaking for God. Anyone who lives in unrepentant sin but claims to be speaking for God is not speaking for God. And even if their message is true and biblically sound, why should we defend their hypocrisy? Right? Why is it okay for a man to stand up in a pulpit knowingly rebelling against God and His truth, refusing to repent, refusing to confess sin, refusing to get right with God when He sins, and yet standing up here and proclaiming the Word of God. Why is that okay? It's not. It's not. And yet, it happens all over. It happens all over our country. It happens all over the world. It happens all over this town, I would dare say, in this county, in this state. That there are people who will get up and they will proclaim, they will profess to be speaking a word from the Lord when in fact their own lives don't even reflect that that word from God, as they say, has had any impact on them. Here's what we should do. We should seek out men 
who will teach and preach God's word, but only after they have first brought their own lives into, into line with the gospel they proclaim. You see, it's not okay. It's not okay for me to get up here and proclaim from Scripture how you are to live if I am not willing to live that way. It's not okay. It's not right. And if I were you, I wouldn't put up with it. Now I realize that that means that I'm putting a standard up here that I have then to follow. And I'm encouraging you to hold me to it. I know what I'm doing. That's just... Just saying, this is the reality. This is why this is why it's a lot more popular to just ignore this stuff. It's a lot easier for a pastor or a preacher or someone who wants to, to generate a large following to just ignore that stuff and say, you know what? Don't do as I do, do as I say. No. Because unless a man has allowed the Word of God to convict their own heart, and then, and then not only to convict them, but then they have responded by confessing sin and by conforming their life to the, to the truth of the Word of God. We should not listen when they speak. Even if what they speak is true from the Word of God, we should not listen to them. We should look at them and say, before you speak to us, you need to do some work. It doesn't invalidate the Word of God, but it does mean that we need to hold our preachers and our teachers to a very high standard. Why? Because God does. James, in, in his little epistle, says to the brethren of the church, his brothers, he said, do, we should not all desire to be teachers. He says, recognize that those of us who are teachers will be held to a very high standard. So I understand what I'm saying to you. I do. I understand the implications of it. It doesn't require a man to be perfect because no one is. But it does require that, that as your pastor, I have to be willing, as I study the Word of God and see what it says, I have to be willing to take that into my own life first before I can stand before you and preach it to you. I have to be willing to preach it to myself. And there are way, way too many today who are just not willing to do that. They should have no following. They should have no one listening to what they say. Because their life, they're they're hypocrite. Why should we defend a hypocrite? A true message, and by the way, this is a true message. A true message deserves a faithful messenger. That's the first thing. I, I think that's the first reason why Paul rejected this. Even if what she said was true, she was not a faithful messenger of the gospel. But, here's where it's going to get a little tricky. See, a lot of people, most people that I've read, conclude that what she said was true. And that Paul just objected because of the source. But I think there's something actually else going on here. I think that not only was this girl a corrupt messenger, but I believe that her message was misleading at best and deceptively false at worst. Wait a second. See, look at this. Look at the message, Pastor. Look what she said. Wouldn't we admit that the Lord is the Most High God? Wouldn't we gladly claim to be servants of the Most High God? Preaching the way of salvation? Wouldn't we gladly affirm that? 
Well, it sounds good, doesn't it? But here's the question. When she talks about this Most High God, to whom is she really referring? I would suggest that at the very least, anyone in Philippi who heard her would not have understood her to be speaking of Yahweh, the the God of the Bible. Instead, they would have interpreted the expression Most High God to mean the highest God to whom they gave allegiance. Had she been in a Jewish city, the expression Most High God would not have been confusing. Because the Jews universally believed in Yahweh as the only true God. But Philippi was a Roman city. And in the mind of the Romans who worshipped the entire pantheon of the Greek gods, the Most High God that this girl referred to could have been any of the gods. Now, we may not be living in a culture of paganism and idol worship. Well, maybe we are. Okay. I suppose it depends on where you look. But there is a lot of confusion today among groups that call themselves Christian, about who God really is. I'll give you some examples. For instance, Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormon cult, said this, God himself was once as we are now and is an exalted man. Did you know that's what the Mormon church teaches? God himself, he said, was once as we are now and is an exalted man. What does Scripture say? I love it. Malachi 3 and verse 6. God says, I am the Lord. I do not change. No. God is not... He was not a man who, who, who went on this process of exaltation to Godhood and became God. No. I... The Lord. I am the Lord. I do not change. God is not a man who has somehow risen to the rank of the Most High God. He has and always has been the Most High God. The only true God. The Mormons may speak of God, but they don't mean the true God as He's revealed in the pages of Scripture. And so using the, the name, or the, the, the you know, talking about God and using those words when we mean something different reveals that the Mormon church does not believe in the same God. And so we might use the same expression, but we don't mean the same thing. That's confusing at best, deceptively false at worst. Isn't it? Well, that's not the only one. What about Mary Baker Eddy, founder of the Christian Science Cult? She wrote this, what is God? Jehovah is not a person. God is principle. What did God say to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 when he asked God about his name? God said, I am who I am. (laughs) That's actually quite a personal thing to say, isn't it? That's not what you would expect from a principle. (laughs) No. Because God's not a principle. God's a person. He's a real person. Not a human being like you and me, but He is the ultimate person. The one from whom our personhood is derived and modeled. Because we were created in His image. 
He is person. He's not a principle. And yet Christian science teaches God's a principle. He's not really a person. That's not what the Bible teaches. Now, we might easily dispense with the Mormons and the Christian scientists and you say, that's not a word for me. Well, well what about this? This is, again, there, there's, this is why this is so, so dangerous because words must be defined and understood in, in, in how they're being used. There are others whose teaching is just as corrupt as the Mormons and Christian scientists and other cults. Even though these teachers and ministries enjoy much greater credibility among so-called Christians. I'll just give you one example because I don't have time to go into a bunch of them this morning. But one example, I just saw him on TV this week. Just happened to turn the TV on Kenneth Copeland. Maybe you've seen him on TV or are familiar with him. Very popular, charismatic teacher. And here's what he said. Where I read in the Bible, where he says, I am, I just smile and say, yes, I am too. You know, he said elsewhere this, you don't have a human, do you? You are one. You don't have a God in you. You are one. This is a man who claims to be a Christian. Professes to be a Christian. Got to tell you, he's not a Christian. He's not. I don't know what he is. He's not a Christian. Not truly. That man and others like him, and there are many like him. I just cherry-picked his name out of the hat. Not out of the hat, but I just, just picked his name. This is one example. There are many like him today around this country, around the world, who are preaching and, pr- and claiming and proclaiming to Christians and to people who think they're Christians and telling them, you are God's. They're not Christians. Because that's not the true God. The true God of heaven. He's not man. He doesn't share his glory with men. If you don't believe me, look back in Acts chapter 12 and see what happened to Herod. Remember when he refused to give God glory? God didn't say, oh, it's okay because you're God too. No. He destroyed him. This teaching is very dangerous. The reason it's so dangerous is because it's being offered by by someone who, who claims to be a genuine Christian. Who professes himself. Who opens up the Word of God and reads it and, and preaches from it. But this is what he preaches. This is not truth. This is not the true God. His view of who God is is wrong. It is not informed by the pages of Scripture. And there are a lot of men like him. The movement that he's a part of is called the Word Faith Movement. These the people who are in it call themselves Christians. But here's what they do. They place themselves in the place of God. And they take God from His throne as the exalted and lifted up one, the almighty creator of the universe. They take Him and they put Him down. (laughs) They relegate Him to the role of a cosmic genie or Santa Claus at the beck and call of every little God, every so-called Christian And so I would say, with respect to what this girl is saying here in Acts 16, just because someone talks about the Most High God doesn't mean they're speaking about the true Most High God. 
We need to discern that. We need to understand that so that we don't fall prey to their false teaching. But then there's more to it because she also talks about the way of salvation, right? There in verse 17, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. But I would suggest to you that that statement is itself also quite unclear. Well, I don't want to get technical with you here, but it's pretty simple. In the Greek, there is no definite article in this sentence, in that phrase. What I mean by that is a definite article is the word the. It's not there in the Greek. When that article is absent before a noun, we could translate it and we could use the or a, depending on the context of what is being said. So it would be valid for us to translate this a way of salvation, not the way of salvation. Notice that difference? Think that's, is that important? Does it matter that this girl might have been saying a way of salvation and not the way of salvation? Well, what did Jesus say? John 14 and verse 6. I am the way. He used the definite article there. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Jesus is not a way among many. He's the way. The only way. There is only one. But even more than that, think about the word salvation. Think about how easily that word salvation could be misunderstood. Because the word salvation can mean a lot of different things, can't it? No, it can refer to spiritual salvation from our sins, like the Bible uses the term, but it, but it can also refer to deliverance from an enemy, or protection in battle, or it can refer to healing from some sickness or disease. Salvation can mean a lot of different things, right? Like I remember talking to... <laughs> Uh, somebody once, this was years ago, and I think he, he was telling me that he had a conversation with a guy. He asked him, well, are you saved? And the guy said, yes, I'm saved. I got saved. When did you get saved? Oh, I, I, was, uh, I was on my tractor, and it went into a ditch and started to tip over, and I just cried out, Lord, save me. And he saved me. Well, now, he's using the word correctly, isn't he? Did God save him? Sure, from the tractor rolling over and squishing him. Did God save him from his sins and give him eternal life? No. Not in that instance, okay? There's a difference, but the word's the same. See how confusing it could be if we're not careful, if we don't clarify that. There's no clarification here. All she says is, these men are proclaiming a way of salvation. What does that mean? You know, it's very common in the mystery religions of the Gentiles to include physical healing along with spiritual salvation when the term was used. Use the word in an all-encompassing way. Salvation. It doesn't just mean saving from your sins. It means saving from everything. Physical deliverance and healing and everything else. And it was very common for them to offer prayers and vows to the Most High God for salvation. They used those terms in their pagan mystery religions. We have it in some of their writings. The truth is that what this girl said was not at all clearly proclaiming the Gospel of Jesus Christ. It was, not, it was not necessarily a true testimony. And there are many today who proclaim a message of salvation, but what they mean by salvation is deliverance from, from illness, from disease, from poverty, from the trials of life. They do not mean deliverance from the power and the presence and the penalty of sin. 
There are many teachers today who distort passages in Scripture, such as Isaiah 53.5. 1 Peter 2.24, where Peter says, By whose stripes you were healed. Referring to Jesus Christ, quoting from the book of Isaiah. They twist those scriptures to suggest that somehow when Christ died on the cross, he died so that you could have physical healing today. So that you could be delivered. So that you could have prosperity. So that you could have health. So that you could have wealth. The problem is, scripture very clearly teaches that Jesus died for our sins. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 3. Why? That we might be made righteous by His sacrifice once and for all. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 10. You know, there's a lot of people today who promise physical healing as part of salvation. But there's a lot of others who who don't necessarily promise that. But they say that they're Christians. They say that they're born again. They say that they're saved. But what they really mean by that is they've been baptized. Or they, they joined a church. Or their family belongs to a particular denomination. I see in Romans 6, Paul describes for us what true biblical salvation looks like. Listen to these verses. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. But now... Having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. True salvation, truly being born again, truly being a Christian, has nothing to do with what church you're a member of, with whether or not you were baptized as an infant or as an adult. But it has nothing to do with what church your family happens to attend or has attended for generations. None of that is relevant when we use terms like Christian and born again and saved. What's relevant, Paul says, is that you obeyed from the heart the form of teaching that you received. That you were set free from sin and become slaves to righteousness which produces the fruit of holiness and whose end is eternal life. That kind of transformation is what really we're talking about when we use those terms. Whatever this girl actually meant by servants of the Most High God who proclaimed to us the way of salvation is obscured by her imprecise language and the obvious contradiction of her identity and lifestyle with the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Now here's the point of all this. Satan is always ready to offer a counterfeit to any true work of God. And so what did he do here? He sent a counterfeit apostle to proclaim a counterfeit gospel to confuse the Philippians and to frustrate the ministry of the ministers of Jesus Christ. And none of his tactics have changed. (laughs) He still does the same thing today. But here's what I'd like you to see as we close this morning. What was Paul's reaction to this demon-possessed girl? And what does that teach us about how we are to respond to the false messengers who come preaching a false gospel today? They're all around us, on the TV, on the radio, in churches all around us. I'm not trying to say that we're the only one in this church that's preaching the gospel. I don't believe that. I don't think that's true. There are churches in this community that are preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And that's great, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm glad for that. I rejoice in that. But there are a lot of churches that aren't. And a lot of churches that aren't just not preaching the gospel, they're preaching a false gospel. They're preaching a deceptive gospel. So what do we do? How do we respond to that? Well, I think, first of all, we see that Paul did not respond immediately to the girl's interruption. What's it say there in verse 18? At the very beginning of the verse, and this she did for many days. So we know that this girl followed Paul and his team as they went about preaching the gospel. And she preached her own message right alongside them. Shouted it out. But this is another question then. If, we, if Paul knew what she was doing, and he knew why, if it grieved him so, why didn't he respond immediately? Why didn't he stop her right away? I think in part because Paul focused on preaching the truth. He knew that the truth of the gospel trumps Satan's lies every time. And we, we need to have that same confidence. We need to have that same assurance that our commitment to the clear teaching and preaching of the word of God will produce real disciples. Well, those who preach a false gospel will produce nothing but imposters. The best way for us to combat error is with the truth, spoken plainly and regularly, so that the counterfeit can be easily seen for what it is. That's why, by the way, you need to be here. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, as they say, preaching to the choir. Right? But that's why we need to be here. That's why it's important for us to be here in this fellowship on a regular basis. Why? Because we need the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. We need it. Because that's the only thing that will combat all of the error and all of the lies and all the deception. We have to have a firm grasp on the truth. We have to know it. We have to believe it. We have to be... Be built up in the truth. And that requires not just once in a while. That requires discipline on a regular basis to be under the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. And can I say this? No, it's not enough for you to crack your Bible at home and do it. You should do that. You should. But it is important for us as believers to regularly place ourselves underneath the teaching and preaching of the Word of God in the church. That's why God has given us the church. It's why Ephesians 4 says that he's gave, He gave to the church apostles and, and teachers and prophets and pastors. Why? So that they could build us up in the truth. Bring us to spiritual maturity. So we need that. We need the truth clearly taught plainly and regularly spoken, so that we can see the counterfeit for what it is. Well, the second thing, though, about Paul's response I find to be interesting. Paul was grieved. Verse 18, she did this for many days, but Paul greatly annoyed. And again, I said that expression really needs to convey the grief in his heart. This really really weighed very heavily on Paul. And he turned and he said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. I believe that Paul was genuinely grieved for this young girl. 
This girl who was enslaved, not just physically, but spiritually. And Paul sought to deliver her by the authority of Jesus Christ. And so we have to remember that those who preach a false gospel, they do so for one of two reasons. Either because they're ignorant of the true gospel, or because of their bondage to sin. Those two things go hand in hand. They're really very difficult to separate. We ought to have pity. We ought to have pity on those who have been trapped, who have been snared by this false gospel, by the false teaching that corrupts the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We ought to have pity on them enough that we would seek their deliverance by the power of the true gospel of Jesus Christ. How does someone become delivered from from the false? How does someone become delivered from that deception? Do you know someone who's caught up in in false teaching in a a church where they're being preached to and taught things that are false? How do you deliver them? We don't. That power is not in us. But we understand that the Holy Spirit empowering the Word of God, the true Gospel of Jesus Christ brings deliverance. It brings freedom from that bondage and slavery. This is the mission to which we've been called. To be witnesses of Jesus Christ to men and women who are enslaved by sin. We need to pray that they might be set free by His name. We always have to remember that there are many who preach a message which claims to be good news, but it is a corruption of the true gospel. And it's delivered at the hands of men and women who give no evidence of the genuine transformation that the gospel of Jesus Christ brings. So be on guard. Be on guard so that you do not fall prey to their false teaching. And, and be ready to respond to them graciously with the truth of God's word. Who knows? Maybe you will be the instrument God uses to deliver them from the power of darkness and convey them into the kingdom of His dear Son. Let's pray.